us together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Go pink for freedom. Go pink for peace. Go pink to hunger. Okay, good morning. Welcome to Code Pink Radio. Oh, before I say anything else, happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, this is Code Pink Radio coming to you live from 89.3 WPFW Washington and 99.5 WBAI New York. We're on the air every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm your host, Pocky Whelan, and this week I'll be chatting with Code Pink National Co-Director Ariel Gold about her trip to recent trip to Iran and to Jamal Abdi, Abdi, yes, yep, uh, from uh, NIAC, the National Iranian American Council. So I'm so glad uh, Jamal is in the studio and. Um, Ariel will be calling in, but before we start our first our first segment, I just have a few updates for you. Uh, right now, uh, you don't have to listen to them, but the uh, the hearing is going on to uh, formalize the impeachment of the president of the United States. So that's number one. Uh, it's also today is the final day of the Saudi investment conference, the uh, Davos in the desert. And just to, to note that a year ago, this was totally boycotted, and now everyone has just forgiven MBS and uh, back to making as much money as they can. Um, over the weekend, you noted that the uh, news broke that the Islamic State leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was killed by the United States, and we finally got some true news on that one. Um, so the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq is what led to the creation of ISIS, and, uh, and now we're dealing with the consequences, and there was much clamor and excitement over the weekend about the death of this man, and I think for any of us who are thoughtful, it, the whole thing is just totally tragic. So, uh, oh, the United States in 2019. All right. Um, we'll have uh, oh, one good piece of news. We have a couple of friends visiting from Northern California, and we just want to let everybody know that in Northern California, the uh, the fires are being contained, and people north of San Francisco are able to go back to their homes. And uh, finally, just two quick announcements about upcoming events. One is uh, the Friday Jane Fonda Friday Fire Drills. They are continuing every Friday with a different focus. So join us this week, the uh, 1st of November, 
at 11 a.m. when Jane Fonda will be at the lawn of the white of the Capitol. Um, and the focus this week is women and climate change. Every week there's been a different focus in this week. It's women and climate change. So please join us to, uh, to share with Jane Fonda the outrage we have over the killing of our planet. And uh, another reminder is next week. So this week, the focus is women. Next week, the focus is on war is not green, on the the effect on the climate of the war machine that we, the United States, has created and how it is the greatest contributor to climate chaos in the world. So please uh, join us this week at 11 and then again next week at 11. And when you're meeting with us next week at 11, you'll be joined by the Remove Trump folks who, beginning this Saturday, beginning two days from now, on November 2nd through the 11th, they'll be converging at the White House every noon and 6 p.m. And so everyone is invited to come out to show your interest, your concern, your desire to remove Trump. So uh, so those are some good activities to do. We'll be talking now with Jamal and, and uh, Ariel about other things we can do. We'll be hearing about the uh, the situation in Iran that is um, <laughs> being affected by the United States, and uh, and what what your take on uh, what's happening is your reaction to the Human Rights Watch piece that came out yesterday, the Iran, Iran sanctions threatening health. Um, so first of all, let me welcome you. Thank you for being here, Jamal. And uh, and Ariel, I trust you're on too. I am. Good. So, um, so you just returned from Iran, and uh, and you both are aware of this this Human Rights Watch piece, and it's how it's just really the the latest chapter in what's happening with uh, with the U.S.'s sanctions on Iran. Uh, Jamal, do you want to start by telling us what your responses and uh, your other thoughts yeah um, so as you as you mentioned human rights watch came out with a report on the humanitarian implications of US sanctions on Iran uh, and outlined a, a, a host of uh, uh, you know impacts particularly on medicine uh, access to medicine inside of Iran the fact that um, you know, Iran does produce a lot of medicine domestically, but uh, as we have seen in past sanctions regimes against Iran, um, even though there have been these supposed exemptions uh, on the U.S. side for medicine, for food, um, for humanitarian goods, uh, th- those are not actually being fully utilized because <clears> – <throat> There are no banking channels to actually facilitate the sale of these goods. Um, and there are a host of other issues that uh, make it so that the medicine that Iran does import, which are you know usually uh, proprietary, whether it's ingredients or proprietary uh, uh, medications, um, those are all not 
able to come into Iran because of, you know, okay, there's a narrow exemption for the goods themselves, but how do you actually facilitate that sale? And so it's not getting there. And then there are also just the broader implications of the sanctions that, you know, have been pretty devastating to the Iranian economy, um, have caused Iranians to, uh, you know, lose money and have to increasingly worry about how they're going to put food on the table and things like that. And that also reduces access to basic goods. And I think that this is not this is nothing new. It corresponds with what we know about the sanctions. What I think we need to really wrap our heads around and, and uh, uh, just finally acknowledge is that this is the intention of these sanctions. This is not an accident. This is, you know, this is not a bug. This is a feature. And the entire idea behind the sanctions regime is predicated on we are going to make the lives of Iranians so miserable that they are going to suddenly come out into the streets and demand that their government collapse or change or whatever it is. Um, that's the idea. This is not about cutting off resources for the Iranian government. This is about collective punishment uh, in order to try to uh, destabilize Iran. And while we see the suffering, we're not seeing the corresponding, you know, popular uh, popular uprising, which even if that came to fruition, begs a lot of questions about what happens next. How is that positive for anybody if you have this failed state with people suffering uh, uh, in the middle of this region that is already, you know, so unstable and so volatile? Um, so the entire thing is just a complete mess. But I'm glad that Human Rights Watch is actually. Uh, you know, documented the, the, the facts and the figures behind these sanctions and to just force us to kind of reconcile with the fact that this is happening in our name and, you know, this is our government doing this to another population. Thanks. Um, well, that was, that was very thorough. Thank you very much. Um, Ariel, would you like to add to this? Sure. Well, the first thing I want to say is that the end of the Human Rights Watch report includes recommendations and really clear directions for what Congress needs to do. Because what's happening with these sanctions, the denial of um, Iranians' right to health by preventing them from accessing life-saving medicines, is that the U.S. is violating um, international law. And Congress needs to compel the Treasury Department to see that humanitarian goods, such as life-saving medicine, are able to get in. Because what um, the U.S. is doing is they have made, you know, technically uh, medicine is not included in the sanctions, but the hoops that companies or banks have to jump through to comply with the sanctions uh, to not uh, risk prosecution against themselves are so cumbersome and difficult and complicated that uh, companies are, you know, staying away. And it's Iranians, the common people, Iranians, like Jamal said, who are paying the consequences. So uh, there's action for Congress to um, begin taking, and we at Code Pink will be working on that. And, you know, so as you mentioned, Paki, I, I just returned from, uh, from Iran. I was there for a little over a week. Uh, the purpose of the trip, it was a Code Pink peace delegation, was to see the country and get a chance to talk with people about uh, what it's like and, um, you know, see the effects of what our government is doing. And, you know, the response from people were that um, prices are going up for everything and just really making life difficult. Uh, you know, Jamal 
talked about what the intentions of these sanctions are. Yeah, to create havoc, so much havoc that uh, the people uh, rebel. What we know is that no U.S. regime change has ever turned out well and has ever benefited the people. And uh, much of what the Iranians um, are facing right now are the after effects of the 1953 coup that the U.S. Um, enacted on Iran. So we we have these you know this this history and and I'm curious about your conversations with ordinary people if you've had many in Iran and what what how they respond to the sanctions are they are people talking about their their willingness to stand firm or their their interest in pulling the the government down with uh, ordinary Iranians, which were times that, you know, maybe we were having lunch as a group and it was people sitting next to me or, um, you know, somebody on the street as we were walking. Uh, certainly I saw no signs at all that uh, people were planning on bringing their government down or that at this moment they thought that that would be advantageous for them. Certainly um, the Iranian people want reforms. They, you know, are not happy with... Um, some of the repressions of the Iranian government, for example, against women. But they do not in any way see U.S. sanctions as as being helpful. They see them for what they are, uh, collective punishment to cause uh, the suffering of Iranian citizens. So, Jamal, um, you at at, uh, NIAC, what's your response to this this human rights report and how does that inform the work you're already doing this report actually comes at an important moment because the trump administration has actually taken recent steps that are going to make the situation even worse um, until now really post um, Iraq sanctions, the Iraq sanctions of the the, the 90s and uh, early 2000s until we decided we needed to go in and invade that country. Um, the, the lesson from those sanctions was one of uh, humanitarian suffering. And, you know, there was an oil for food program that that enriched the government that was supposedly targeted by those sanctions. And then there was the massive, you know, humanitarian and, you know, the social impacts of that regime. And so post that period, there has been this uh, consensus, uh, you know, in Congress with successive administrations that the United States will not engage in that kind of behavior, that there will be there need to be serious steps to ensure that sanctions are not targeting humanitarian goods and imposing this kind of suffering on ordinary people. We've seen the devastating results. Um, and so, you know, since the early 2000s, there has, there has been consistently uh, been a, a humanitarian exemption uh, to these sanctions that I talked about, which is not, you know, it's not effective. It, you know, has uh, not. Uh, prevented things like those that have been outlined in the Human Rights Watch report, but they are there. And so, as a country, we we say, you know, we're we're sanctioning Iran, but medicine and food is allowed to go in, and you know, figure out how to do that. But that's what we that's what we say. Recently, the Trump administration kind of found a loophole in that congressional mandate, um, and has taken the Central Bank of Iran, which. Uh, had been sanctioned previously, and then with the nuclear deal, the sanctions were lifted so that, you know, Iran's economy could 
begin to be normalized. And then when Trump decided to leave the deal, the sanctions were slapped back on the central bank, but it included the humanitarian exemptions. And the central bank is really the key um, node inside of Iran that is providing the financing for the import of medicine and is really uh, is key to that supply chain or, or whatever you want to call it of ensuring that humanitarian goods can come in. What the Trump administration has done is not only have they sanctioned uh, for nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear proliferation concerns, mm-hmm. sanctioned the, the central bank, they have now designated for terrorism concerns. And what that means is that the central bank of Iran is now designated under terrorism sanctions by the United States. So it's treated as essentially a terrorist entity. And for that, there is no humanitarian exemption. So now the the United States is deliberately targeting humanitarian trade. And in that announcement, the Trump administration said, acknowledged, you know, indirectly that this was the case and said, if there's going to be humanitarian trade with Iran, you have to come and get a license from us. And there's there's no pathway for foreign companies or countries to get that license and then within the united states it's such an onerous process that and it's a slow process that it's it's pretty much unworkable uh then the administration came out with some more details last week about the due diligence that would need to be committed in order for a bank to actually go through this process of selling humanitarian goods to iran and it's so onerous it's so the 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 barriers are so high that it effectively shuts off any humanitarian trade with iran so we are now seeing even as human rights watch documents what has happened over the past we are now seeing an all-out assault on humanitarian trade with iran that is very much intentional which is part of the trump administration's maximum pressure policy aimed at collapsing Iran's government or forcing Iran to capitulate that we know is not working. And we now know that the situation is going to get much worse. So for us, you know, first step, we're going to Congress and we're trying to inform lawmakers about this because this is actually, you know, as far as their interests are concerned, um, this is an abrogation of the intent of the laws that were put in place uh, that are supposed to protect humanitarian trade. This is the Trump administration finding a loophole. And so our hope is that you know, this Congress is is pretty consumed with with other issues, but that there can at least be some pressure, if not actual, you know, legislative action to try to close that loophole to ensure that even the limited channels for humanitarian trade that do exist uh, are not now fully shuttered because of the the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy. Yeah. And as you noted, that the process is so complex and so tedious and and lengthy that uh, that actually getting the material, the the health care that people need, uh, is is blocked even if they they start the process. You know, work on that. Uh, we also talked earlier though about about some leakage and possibilities of going around some of this. And 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 I'm curious. You know, we. Uh, this is not directly about medicines, but the uh, there there are countries that seem to be standing up to the United States' uh, sanctions and and uh, and in fact ignoring them. And uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts about that are, and and what what the meaning of that is. So when the U.S. when Trump was considering withdrawing from the Iran deal. Um, you know, one of the arguments against doing that was that, you know, the the way that the Obama administration built its own sanctions regime, which, you know, uh, it's it's debatable how effective those really were in achieving U.S. interests. Um, but the the argument had been, you know, the United States is going to lose that consensus that 
previously existed on Iran, which, you know, enabled Obama to build this, these sanctions that the entire world, including China and Russia, got behind. And then the entire world got behind this nuclear deal and the lifting of those sanctions. Um, and that by withdrawing from that deal, imposing these sanctions, the rest of the world was going to say no. You know, this is a this is codified in a U.N. resolution. This is a deal we negotiate over years. We're not going to go along with those sanctions once again. And what we initially saw was that Europe um, did push back and actually uh, passed laws that uh, were supposed to bar European country, uh, companies from complying with the sanctions. Uh-huh. Uh, there was also the creation of this this banking channel called Instex, which was supposed to be um you know, sort of the boot and suspenders approach to ensuring the U.S. sanctions wouldn't actually have an impact and encourage Iran to leave the nuclear deal. This was a channel that was supposed to be kind of isolated from other banking channels so that it could withstand potential U.S. sanctions and it would be used to facilitate trade with Iran. Both of these measures by Europe ended up being kind of all talk. Uh, uh, so the problem was that companies in Europe are not going along with what Europe is asking. Companies are saying, you know what, we're not happy with this. But we're not going to risk being sanctioned by the United States, so we're going to pull out of Iran. We're not going to do business with Iran. It's just it's too dangerous. The profits are not uh, at a level that would justify us taking this risk. Um, and so, you know, the sanctions on Iran that Trump has put in place have been effective if the measure of efficacy is how much of an impact they have, you know, inside of Iran. And really, you know, the rest of the world is largely complying with them, uh, at least, you know, in the private sector. Now, you do have leakage with, um, you know, like, with China um, and a couple of other states. You know, China is continuing to find ways to buy Iranian oil. Um, but China has also pulled out of Iran. You know, they pulled out of uh, investment in developing some uh, Iranian uh, uh, natural gas uh, resources. So, Iran is not going to collapse because there is this leakage. They are finding ways to trans to, to sell oil to China. Um, they are finding ways to do business. There always is a way around this, um, but it is certainly having an impact. And it's surprising, I think, to some of us just how powerful the United States really continues to be on this front. And I think long term, it does some damage to the U.S. ability to try to convince people to go along with it in, you know, uh, coercive diplomacy and things like that. But for now, there's been sort of a very risk averse approach by the rest of the world. And so Iran has had to find creative new ways to facilitate trade and kind of stay uh, continue to to stay afloat. And just another point, what Iran has done, which is really beneficial to people inside of Iran who don't want Iran to be sort of a, a normalized economy and to have relations with the outside world and to ensure that the Iranian people are able to have relations, is they have uh, really push for the economy to be sort of self-reliant uh, and to develop, you know, to, to develop domestic capabilities, whether it's in producing medicine or, you know, domestic manufacturing, things like that. And th- this is, you know, when the nuclear deal was signed, what the people who were driving that deal inside of Iran, the, the moderates and reformists, their argument was that if Iran could begin to come out from under the sanctions and become more sort of integrated with, with the rest of the world, this was going to you know, allow Iran to sort of organically, um, you know, develop politically and address some of these issues that Iranians have so many concerns about, uh, which, you know, the, the domestic repression and the state of the economy uh, and, and that by, you know, opening up to the outside world, 
you know, and, and our view at Nayak as well was that, you know, there was, there's sort of this organic trajectory for Iranian society and for its political development where, you know, there are elements of the Iranian government that just, they're expired. These are revolutionary ideas that have expired and it's, you know, the Iranian people want a different pathway and this is sort of how you allow it to get to that point. And what the people who oppose the deal, who are kind of, you know, grasping the power inside of Iran, the so-called, you know, hardliners, their biggest concern about the deal was that it was going to allow penetration from the outside world into Iran, particularly particularly the West. And so their concern was that opening up of Iran because they feared that that would actually put pressure on them to be more responsive to their own people. And what this has now done has actually been to force Iran to look inward, to validate some of those arguments of those hardliners, and to actually strengthen their hand to say, you know, Iran needs to be dependent on Iran and needs to just resist the outside world. And frankly, that's a pretty strong argument when, you know, the one time that Iran and the the West actually struck this deal and found this mutual compromise, their economy has not improved and they, you know, they were lied to, they were burned. And so I think that the impact, not just on the humanitarian and sort of the, the, the social issues, but also the impact on Iran politically uh, and on the sort of the direction of its economy are pretty profound here and go beyond just even what's happening right now in the mo- in the moment, but could have enormous implications for the direction that Iran actually goes in the, you know, the years to come. Yeah. A- Ariel, do you want yeah. to make a comment on this? Well, I, I would just very much agree and say those were, some, you know, some of the conversations that we had inside Iran that... Um, Things are, are getting worse in, in terms of uh, moving in the opposite direction of the kind of reforms. And I love how Jamal phrased it, just, you know, outdated aspects of the revolution that uh, people would like to see change. Um, and, and I have a question for Jamal. I'm wondering who you might suggest would be our best uh, champions in, in Congress who, uh, who might be most likely to uh, work on some of this, uh, making sure the humanitarian aid gets in. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's a struggle to even get the attention of, you know, most of Congress right now, given everything that's going on. Um, we did work with uh, Congressman Jared Huffman, and I believe he, um, he and uh, I, I want to say 20 colleagues uh, sent a letter to the administration about the humanitarian impact uh, of the sanctions, and that was last year. Um, and so... Jared Huffman, he's he's in Northern California. He has a you know decent Iranian American population, um, so he's been somebody that has spoken out on this. I think if we really want the administration to do something, you know, as always, it has to be bipartisan. We have to find some Republicans who are willing to say, okay, this is not this is not what we do. You know, this is this is a violation of you know, congressional intent and, you know, U.S. values. Um, and so we're still hunting for that person. You know, there are people like, you know, there are people like Rand Paul who have spoken out about this stuff. Um, there are Republicans who, you know, supposedly care about these issues, about humanitarian issues and human rights, like Chris Smith uh, in the House. Uh, and so I think the key is going to be to try to find some bipartisan consensus, and in lieu of that, make sure that the Democrats who have stood up on this issue uh, do put pressure on the administration, but also that in the context of the 2020 campaign, that this is understood as an important dynamic in U.S. foreign policy towards Iran, and that this doesn't get swept under the rug. Because I could really envision a situation where 
you know, Trump loses or, or however it doesn't end up in the White House in 2021. And then you have a Democratic president who says, OK, yeah, you know, I'm going to undo what Trump did, but we're going to keep a lot of these sanctions in place and we're going to continue to be tough on Iran. The political pressures being what they are, we're not actually going to address these issues. We're going to kind of do Trump light. And so I think that if we can't get pressure now from both sides, we have to at least make sure that this is a priority on one side of the aisle so that when there's an opportunity to address it, it can actually happen. Uh, I, I want to go back to something you said a little bit ago, Jamal, and that is that uh, the economy did not get better when the sanctions were lifted, and uh, and that there was a, this ideal that many of us had that this, this would become the normalizing of our relations with with Iran, and uh, and its part in in just affirming its part in the in the human countries of of the world and you know in the in the ordinary intercountry workings and what it sounds like is that it didn't they didn't get better but i'm wondering was it was there enough time you know there wasn't a lot of time between the the lifting of some of the sanctions and it wasn't all the sanctions and right. uh and the the reimposition of sanctions right so you know, I actually think that the Obama administration, you know, I mean, getting the nuclear deal was a, you know, a Herculean undertaking and absolutely the opening for something much bigger and, and better and putting the two countries on a positive trajectory. But, you know, we at NIAC really try to encourage um, a more comprehensive lifting of sanctions, and that would mean not just getting the sanctions lifted rather than suspended. Because under the nuclear deal, it, the sanctions were suspended by the president, but it would need to go to Congress for them to actually be repealed. And under the deal, it was envisioned that, I think it was uh, year seven or eight uh, of the deal, the president would go to Congress to get the sanctions lifted because of the, you know, just the massive political undertaking that that would represent. And so, you know, we had been pressing for, no, do this now, you know, because otherwise... We might end up in a situation where the next president doesn't decide to suspend the sanctions and we unravel the deal. And because it doesn't give confidence to the rest of the world that this is a serious uh, agreement and that these sanctions won't come back into force. Um, and so they should begin investing. But the other piece of it was, yeah, you know, the sanctions relief was pretty limited. And even in the early days of the deal, there were real problems with actually, um, you know, realizing what was sort of promised at the negotiating table in terms of the sanctions relief. And that was because there continued to be these, these, you know, banking sanctions and other sanctions that just made it so difficult to actually navigate what was suddenly permissible. So there were instances of, you know, for instance, the billions of dollars that supposedly the United States gave to Iran, which was really just Iranian, you know, funds that had been seized by the United States that uh, the U.S. was returning. And the U.S. government couldn't even find ways to actually facilitate the transfer of those funds because of the remaining sanctions under the nuclear uh, under the nuclear agreement. So even the U.S. government couldn't navigate uh, these sanctions uh, that remained in place after the deal. Even with that being the case, um, you know, there was an opportunity for the, the, the deal never really got off the ground because, um, you know, it was it was secured in late 2015. Then you have the 2016 campaign in which the Republicans are saying we're going to tear up the deal, and you have outside observers 
companies, banks saying, okay, this is a little precarious. We're not necessarily, we're not ready to go into Iran because we don't know what's going to happen. And so you could say the deal only had three years of, uh, you know, fulfillment until the U.S. withdrew, but really it was even shorter than that because of all that uncertainty. And so it did never really get off the ground. And so we don't know. We don't know whether it would have worked or not because it never actually was uh, put into practice fully. I am so sorry we're going to have to end this segment. Uh, it's John, we'll, we'll have to have you back again and more from you too, Ariel. Um, thank you. This has really been enlightening, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed this too. And uh, we'll now take a break and um, come back in a little bit to talk about the plowshares actions. Um, noting how all of these things are related to one another. And I I think particularly you're noting that uh, the United States is, again, in violation of international law and how we have to keep bringing back that notion and how do we hold our country accountable to be a part, to, 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 to stay in line with international law, to obey international law. And if we can do that, I think things will, our relationship with Iran and the people of Iran will be much better. It's on us. Yeah. And, and I want to encourage folks to go to the Code Pink website, uh, codepink.org and slash no Iran war, um, to take some actions and learn a bit more. Thanks. Thanks, Ariel. Thank you, Jamal, for being here. And, uh, we'll now take a break.
So, uh, thanks for listening. You are listening to Code Pink Radio on uh, WPFW, Washington, D.C. We're broadcast live every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. And uh, and we're very happy that we've got now Sam Husseini on. Sam is a communication director for the Institute for Policy Accuracy, and he was recently down at the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 and is here to talk about his experience with the Plowshares and uh, and with the Court of Law in Brunswick, Georgia. Hi, Sam. Welcome to Code Pink Radio. Thanks so much for having me on, Packy. It's the Institute for Public Accuracy. It's accuracy.org for people who want to check it out. We've done several news releases on the trial, and I, I think it was both an incredibly moving experience and, and a profoundly aggravating one in terms of how the legal system effectively covered up a great deal of reality. So you want to just give a quick background to uh, who were these Plowshare 7 in Brunswick, Georgia, on trial, and and what brought you to that trial? Um, They were uh, uh, Catholic worker activists from around the country, including uh, Liz McAllister, the um, widow of uh, Philip Philip Berrigan uh, from Jonah House in Baltimore, um, Claire Grady from a large Catholic worker community in uh, upstate New York that uh, protests drone bombings a lot, um, uh, s- several others that, you know, uh, I don't know how limited we are on time here, uh, Mark Colville um, from New Haven, Connecticut, Amistad House, and uh, Patrick O'Neill uh, from North Carolina. Um, anyway, so uh, there were these seven from around the country, and uh, Steve Kelly, uh, uh, a um, Jesuit priest who's still in jail. Um, and what they did was re- really remarkable. They, they th- These Plowshares actions began in 1980, and this was uh, not necessarily the largest, but it might have been a fairly complicated case. Uh, they went to the uh, center, a center facility of where... Trident missiles are housed in Georgia. Um, uh, these are first strike weapons, um, meaning that they can. They're submarines, which seems defensive, but it's not. That that is, they, they can go to the shoreline of um, Russia, say, and launch very accurate missiles. Uh, what does that mean? That means the Russians have to be on hair trigger alert, and that tremendously destabilizes um, the world and increases the risks of accidental launch and so on and so forth. So they really honed in on the most threatening part of the U.S. military arsenal by honing in on the Trident uh, missiles. But they went there and they they put a hammer to a monument um, that's there uh, for the Trident missiles at the base They uh, with their religious beliefs wrote idol and blasphemy on the replicas of the missiles. Uh, several of them went to the uh, where the actual missile bunkers were, the, the actual silos where they store the warheads before they, they uh, put them on the submarines. Um, and several of them went to the administ- administrative building where they scrawled, uh, may love disarm us all, and... Um, uh, left a book by Daniel Ellsberg 
uh, uh, the Doomsday Machine Confessions of a Nuclear Weapons Planner um, uh, that came out in 2017. Very compelling book that really talks about the threat of nuclear weapons that people unfortunately seem to, you know, forget about or put it out of their mind, the actual reality of it. Um, and they left an indictment, um, uh, you know, basically saying why the base, why what they were doing was violating international law um, and so on. Uh, they very willingly were arrested two hours after they left, uh, after they entered the base. Um, at the trial, which began, you know, just a week ago, you know, and this is like a year and a half later. So the government, there were a lot of pre-trial motions, um, and the government had a very long time to figure out how to present a case to portray these defendants in the most negative possible light. And they attempted, and they had a great deal of time given to them by the judge to depict them as, you know, vandals, basically. Um, they eventually allowed them to talk about their religious motivation, but not in a real way. Um, the judge even allowed, you know, it, it's just incredible how they, they were portrayed as being subjective. But the judge allowed the government witnesses people who worked at the base, under oath to say that they could neither conform, confirm nor deny that nuclear weapons even existed at the base. Um, so the jury, <laughs> um, you know, was never really given information, and a large part of the, 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 what the, they wanted, what the defense wanted to put forward, they wanted to have Daniel Ellsberg as a witness. Um, the judge would not allow his um, declarations to to be submitted uh, to the court. Uh, Francis Boyle, a very prominent international lawyer, um, wrote a very long declaration and very much wanted to testify. Uh, the judge would not allow it um, uh, with his citations of international law and treaty obligations by the United States government that it's violating in terms of its nuclear policy. Um, uh, nor would they uh, allow a theologian from Fordham University and a Catholic bishop to um, testify regarding uh, religious uh, freedom issues. Um, this was a first attempt in a plowshares case to invoke RIFRA, a Religious Freedom um, Restoration Act, which has been invoked by the right wing, and here you saw them sort of try to turn the tables and, and use it for a very different purpose for uh, religiously motivated peace activists, but the judge shot down that shot that down as well, claiming that the government had a overwhelming, uh, a, a compelling government interest, which would you know normally be applied to things like public safety um, uh, and such. But here, the government was applying it to um, protecting nuclear weapons. Right, talk about public sa safety. The, uh, the the greatest threat to our public safety is right there in the Trident submarines. They, exactly. One of the signs that the uh, the plowshares held was the uh, the what is it? The ultimate use of the Trident is omnicide. It's the end of all life. Right. They they, they were motivated. It, the, the action took place on April fourth, two thousand eighteen, which is the fiftieth, exactly fifty years after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And they had two banners. Well, one banner quoted uh, 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 Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King saying, um, "The logic of the ultimate logic of racism is genocide." 
And building on that, they said that the ultimate logic of Trident is omnicide. Uh, that is, that the logic of these weapons is ultimately the destruction of virtually all life um, on on the planet, or at least a very, you know, virtually all human life. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I also want to go back to your your mentioning Rifra, this religious information, this religious belief that informed people on the right to uh, right. not have to bake cakes or right. uh, give insurance to people who wanted uh, health insurance to cover various procedures. The uh, the use of that is is quite controversial, but. Sure. Um, but that it wasn't allowed here uh, was really a travesty, I think, in, and uh, and and really showed that this is not about religious freedom. Uh, that's not why the the Supreme Court uh, affirmed it in the in the, those two instance, instances, but rather that it's in keeping with a much more restrictive interpretation of the law. And uh, and so our friends got. Uh, were found guilty because they weren't even able to use it, and um, and I'm I'm curious I'm curious about a couple of things. One is what what brought you to this trial? Uh, there are lots of things that that uh, could have could have drawn you rather than a trip to this remote part of Georgia, and uh, yeah. and what what the significance of this trial is? Do you think in in the common wheel today? Um. I had gotten to know some of the people from upstate New York in their um, protests outside of a drone base in I- Ithaca, New York, uh, where the, the, there are people there, op- you know, military people operating drones um, that are, kill- you know, that they're basically killing people in Afghanistan and other places remotely. Um, and uh, these uh, uh, activists, part of the uh, Ithaca, New York Catholic worker community, had um done continual protests there um and uh i I didn't find out until i went to this trial um that uh there are a whole cluster of them the grady's um and that their father um i I work with claire grady who was one of the defendants but marianne her sister uh, Teresa, uh, 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 Claire Grady, their whole cluster of them. Uh, their father had been um, one of the main architects of uh, past actions um, uh, regarding the Vietnam War and other things. Uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, I'm sorry, was um, kind of obsessed with him as uh, uh, an organizer, somebody who was you know, utilizing his community to actually stand up to um, government oppression and uh, uh, continuous government war. Um, uh, I had actually lived in a Catholic worker house in Brooklyn, New York, uh, many years ago. So, uh, you know, I, you know, it's not, you know, a community that I, you know, totally, you know, adopted, but something that I was very interested in that I have a fair amount of respect for. Um, so, uh, that, I mean, that's part of, you know, why I, why I did decide, <laughs> decide to go. And I, I think it was, you know, um, I think that it's something that the, the rest, I mean, it's important legally, it's important for the issues of bringing nuclear weapons to the fore. Um, I also, you know, found it moving in terms of the community around it. You know, it was something of a moral barn raising. 
It certainly was. Yes. Yeah, all of these activists from around the country, um, you know, cooking food and um, having talks, and you know, you know, as far as I could tell, nobody or virtually nobody was getting a paycheck out of this. Um, it was just everybody coming together to try to, you know, stand up for these defendants who, because of their moral beliefs and because of their care for humanity and wanting to stop the prospect of <laughs> a nuclear war, which would obliterate um, uh, humanity, um, you know, we're, we're putting themselves on the line. They, these people are facing 20 years of um, prison time. One of them uh, is still in jail. Um, uh, he sat didn't say virtually a word during the entire trial, wouldn't stand up for the judge or jury, um, Stephen, uh, Father Stephen Kelly. Um, the others, you know, tried different kinds of defenses as much as the judge would allow, and the, they, they would continuously, uh, you know, hector them. The, the prosecution objected constantly. They'd have constant sidebars with the judge and the um, litigants, and then, you know, various, you know, arguments would have, would be dropped. Um so it was very difficult, I think, for the jury to, you know, make out what exactly was going on at times. I still think that the jury could have done that if they really tried. For example, that when they admitted Daniel Ellsberg's book, um, uh, The Doomsday Machine, into evidence, the, 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 at the very end, the prosecutor almost screamed at the jury, this book is to be admitted is admitted as evidence only because they took it on the case. It is not to evidence for the truth of it. Right. That is, he was basically warning the jury not to crack open the book because he didn't want the truth of it to come out. He didn't want the reality of the nuclear weapons and the threats they pose and the lies that they're based on and the illegality under international law um, that's there to be shown to the jury because the judge had uh, you know, I think, you know, you know. again, it's, it's been 18 months uh, since the action took place. They spent the last 18 months choreographing what could be said to the jury to make it appear that this is, an, you know, an open trial, but to make sure that there isn't enough evidence on the table or a legal mechanism uh, to get the um, to get the defendant off. Uh, and uh, and they, they, they at least so far succeeded. Well, I think so, and and I think it was it was another it was just a travesty that um, that with the eighteen months they had to prepare the uh, the very interesting thing was that there was a a hearing some months ago during which the um, the RIFRA the religious freedom uh, right. Did you go to the hearings? I didn't go to the hearings. I I did, and the the thing oh, that, was, that was very interesting was the uh-huh. um, the the judge. Basically gave what I what I would use as, and I think our, our attorneys will uh, use as a, a a basis for an appeal is that she she noted there um, every that they actually kept within the parameters of this religious freedom act, and they they met all the qualifications that they were they were dedicated they they obeyed the law they. They followed the structures of of this act, and uh, and it, so. But I, then she she disallowed it. Yes. Yeah, I believe uh, I'm, this is the part of the case that I'm least familiar with. But I believe that what the magistrate and the judge said was that these were you know sincerely held religious beliefs, 
that they were prophetic and sacramental. I think they used those words. Yes. Um, but that there was an overriding government interest. Um, and they also claimed that the government used the least restrictive means to stop them, which I, I you know, I guess in a sense the government could have shot them. <laughs> yes. Once, once they, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what else it would mean to say that putting them, you know, charging them with crimes, including conspiracy, um, and so on, you know, threatening them with uh, 20 years, uh, over 20 years in prison is the least restrictive means other than to say that, well, at least we didn't shoot them. Right, they didn't shoot um, them. Yeah, so so we know now that uh, that within 90 days there will be a sentencing, and uh, and no one knows what what that will come out as. And uh, in fact, we don't even know when within the next 90 days this uh, this this verdict will come down. The uh, the 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 sentencing. Um, Correct. We just now, have about a minute left, Sam. Is there anything else that you would that I haven't asked about that you you think is important for our listeners to know? There's so much. I mean, this is a really critical case. I really hope people look at the web page that the activists put together, Kings Bay Plowshares Seven dot org. That's the numeral seven at the end there. Kings Bay Plowshares Seven. Lots of really interesting material there. Some video of the actual defendant. Um. Uh, who, you know, spoke in very different ways, each of them, and really shown their humanity through. And I think that it, it should be a real encouragement and a challenge to us here in Washington, D.C. There is so much, you know, evil planned in this town um, uh, that, that these people are willing to, to genuinely risk 20 years. That's a life sentence for many of them. It's, um, uh, yes. Uh, uh, in, in prison. Uh, for their sincere beliefs, um, I, I think it's a genuine challenge for other people if, if we're going to believe that uh, courage is contagious. Yes, thank you very much. It is a reminder that there are alternatives to just going along with what's happening in this in this city right now, and uh, and so to be inspired, listeners, be inspired. Thank you, Sam, for joining me. This is Sam Husseini, and uh, I'm Pocky Whelan. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Go pink for freedom. Go pink for peace. For WPFW News, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with some brief news headlines. The full House of Representatives this morning began debating a resolution to authorize the ongoing impeachment inquiry ahead of a showdown vote later in the day. This vote marks the first time that members of the House would formally go on record to support or object to the ongoing impeachment inquiry. Democrats have indicated that they expect enough support to approve the resolution, even though most or all Republicans are expected to vote against it. It is likely to take weeks or more before the House votes on whether to actually impeach President Trump. 
If the House impeaches Trump, the Senate would hold a trial to to decide whether or not to remove him from office. A former top national security advisor to Trump is appearing before House impeachment investigators today. Tim Morrison is expected to corroborate the testimony of Ambassador William Taylor, who testified last week that Morrison had notified him of a push by the president and his allies to withhold military aid and a White House meeting from Ukraine in exchange for an investigation into the Bidens. Morrison plans to leave his job at the White House, a senior administration official told the Associated Press. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton will not agree to a voluntary interview in the impeachment inquiry, his lawyer said yesterday, shortly after the former official was summoned by Democrats. The House committees leading the impeachment investigation had asked Bolton to appear behind closed doors next week, but Bolton's lawyer, Charles Cooper, says Bolton will not appear without a subpoena. Democrats have issued subpoenas to several other witnesses who did, in fact, end up testifying. After 10 days on the picket line, the Chicago Teachers Union has voted to accept a tentative deal with the city, but that still doesn't mean teachers will return to work today. The union has requested that the school system schedule makeup days for lost time to the strike, but Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has refused to make those days up. As a result, classes will again not be in session today. The strike in the nation's third largest school district has kept more than 360,000 students out of school. California firefighters continue to battle historic hurricane force winds and wildfires as thousands have been forced to evacuate their homes. Two new devastating wildfires broke out this morning, burning through a combined 300 acres. More than 10 wildfires are blazing overall in the state. Over 50 young climate activists from California staged a sit-in at the Capitol Hill office of Nancy Pelosi yesterday, chastising the Democratic Speaker of the House for failing to act boldly on climate, even as their home state is engulfed by wildfires. After taking over Senator Dianne Feinstein's office earlier in the day, the climate activists from the Sunrise Movement proceeded to Pelosi's office, where they displayed signs reading, What is your plan? and sang the protest song, Which Side Are You On? Twitter will no longer allow paid political advertising beginning next month, November. The move comes as tech, com- tech companies have come under scrutiny for their handling of misinformation and could put pressure on other social media sites to follow Twitter's lead. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is under fire for accepting political advertisements, even when politicians like President Trump make demonstrably false or misleading claims. Weather in Washington, D.C. 